This is Speaking of Anthropology on KSUA 91.5 FM Fairbanks. My name is Dylan, and today I have a very special guest uh, from the UA Museum of the North, amongst many other things, the film curator there, uh, Len Kammerling, if you'll please introduce yourself. Yes, thanks for inviting me to, to talk on the show. Uh, yeah, Len Kammerling, curator of film at the museum, and um, I teach in the English department in the creative writing program screenwriting and, and dramatic writing. And so uh, just to start off the show a little bit uh, with your uh, personal background. So uh, I guess, you know, where, where are you from originally? And, and I'm originally from New York. Okay. I, I, I grew up in New York. And, um, you know, I come from an immigrant family. Mm-hmm. And... Um, after a couple of years of college, I came to Alaska, and that kind of started me on the route that um, you know to making films. And so, uh, did you study film when you were in university then, as an undergraduate, or? I didn't, but I always really had an interest in film. Okay. And um, when I came to Alaska, which was in the mid nineteen sixties, this was part of the. Um, the peace, like the Peace Corps, but uh, Vista was a domestic program of the poverty, uh, you know, the the poverty program of the time, and so I was just, you know, a young guy from New York, and ended up in a tiny little Yupik village in, you know, Southwest Alaska, and um, it rather rewired my thinking, and my brain, and I think I was never quite the same again. So when I went back after that year, um, you know, there were some things that I just have really settled with me and that I thought a lot about. One of the things was that the life and the kind of the culture that I saw there was very different from how Native people were being represented in films. So that question of how do you do that? How would one go about doing that? Mm-hmm. Kind of moved me forward in, in that direction. So out of curiosity then, um, what was uh, what were some of the ways then that they were being represented at that time in film? What were some of those depictions like? Yeah, good question. Um, mostly at the time and going you know back, um, Native people were represented as the noble savage. Okay. Kind of innocent, childlike, um, and you know this this idea of the noble savage just comes from you know the French philosopher Rousseau mm-hmm. said that uh, man is innocent in his sort of wild natural state, but it's civilization that spoils him, and uh, you can see this idea played out in films. You know, starting in the 30s with uh, Van Dyke's Eskimo, you know, all the way up through uh, the, the 60s, there was a film called The Savage Innocents uh, with Anthony Quinn and playing this, you know, Inuit 
character. And this was the noble savage played out over and over and over and over mm-hmm. again. And um, in documentaries, the documentaries were very informational. You know, they always had a narrator. Mm-hmm. And the, the narrator or the expert would explain to you. You almost never heard people speak for themselves. Uh, so, yeah, there, was, there wasn't any of, of their own voices, their own no. agency in, in how they were describing themselves and portraying themselves. Yeah, part of the reason was that um, equipment wasn't portable in the 40s, 50s, mm-hmm. and you needed you know, truckloads of stuff to record sound on location. And that all changed in, in the mid-60s with the you know, invention of portable equipment. But the consciousness and the focus of anthropology at the time very much supported this kind of informational look this way of looking at things as as information. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, everybody was familiar with how the culture worked, how people lived, how they got food. But there was really no consciousness of their inner life, mm-hmm. the sort of emotional landscape, you know, what people felt like. And mm-hmm. so the idea occurred to me that if you give people a choice to, you know, speak for themselves... To have control of this process, how would it be different? You know, what if we went to a village and refused to take responsibility and authority as filmmakers? Okay. And just kind of opened it up. What would happen? And so then, when, I guess when was the first time that you were able to start doing that then? Was that something you were able to do fairly immediately or... It took a while. In, in, in the interim, I went to film school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I learned a thing or two. Um, and I, I raised some money. But, but this was still sort of like a, a wild idea. Mm-hmm. And there was really no kind of process or value about collaboration in anthropology at the time or in research in general. And um, so we didn't have a lot of models Okay. And there were people in anthropology who were very, very supportive, and there were people who were hostile to this idea. And since we're, my partner Sarah Elder and I, we're not anthropologists, mm-hmm. you know, people would say, well, you need anthropologists to tell you what to look at and, and how to go. So um, it was an experiment. Mm-hmm. And that experiment went on for, you know, 20 more years each time kind of getting closer and refining it and um, making what's a very imperfect process into something more refined and I hope more representational. Mm-hmm. So that makes me curious then, do you think that there is um, maybe an upper limit or a bound to how representational you could have those kinds of, any kind of film really be or do you think that it is a goal that you can, even if you can't touch, you can always just strive for and get a little better each time? Yeah, that that's a really good question. And I probably would have answered that very differently, you know, when I was just starting. Mm-hmm. Because I was much more sort of, you know, committed to the, to the I- ideology of this rather than to the, sort of the, the practical part of it. But looking at it now and seeing how this all evolved, <clears throat> excuse me, we always knew it was imperfect. 
Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of talk, a lot of belief in the idea of cinema truth. You know, the cinema verite, cinema truth movement came out of the 60s. These are very, very exciting movements, Mm -hmm. really ideologies. But it was pretty obvious to us that there was no real cinema truth. You know, that this is, it's a compromise. It's, um, we're going to do something that's imperfect. And we agree that it's imperfect from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And we're going to do something that comes as close as we can get. And then we'll both decide that this is pretty good. So, yeah, so from the get-go, then, there is a recognition of it being a, a compromise, but that doesn't that doesn't negate any of, obviously, any of the work or the, the goal of trying to do your best, nonetheless. I don't think so. And even now, um, you know, with things very much changed and a very vital and alive indigenous film movement, mm-hmm. it's still a compromise. You know, there's, there still is no cinema truth, even when people are looking at their own cultures. Um, I think it's still an imperfect process. So then to return to your own career a little bit, so once you started making these films, um, you know, what were, I guess, so did you keep working in the North or was it like, or did you start working in the North and branch out or did you start somewhere else? I'm kind of curious as to what that Mm kind of, how that shaped out for you. Right, well... um, I was dedicated to continue working in Alaska. Mm-hmm. And um, after this first film, which by some miracle actually got made and got finished, mm-hmm. um, I had an idea to use this process and make a film in each language area of Alaska. Okay. Okay, so we would end up with a series of seven films, seven or eight films. Mm-hmm. And uh, we didn't do that. Life kind of intervened. But we began doing that. And the first place we went was St. Lawrence Island, where we ended up making four films oh, over okay. a period of you know, five or six years. Mm-hmm. And one thing led to another. And the films did very well in a lot of different levels. Um, They were really embraced by the communities because the communities had a sense of ownership from the beginning. So then you were able to, from from even those earlier films from the beginning, have that be like a co-authored product as we kind of think of it today in anthropology of... Yes, yeah. ...of the community also being treated as a fully equal partner in that process yeah, and, and attributed like that. Right. And, um, you know, what we, we, we called it community collaborative filmmaking. Okay. And it was a collaboration between the filmmakers who had an ethnographic bent but were not anthropologists mm-hmm. and the community who have a definite history with film. And, um, you know, that's how the experiment went forward. And so then, uh, once you or had done the St. Lawrence Island stuff, what ended up being next for you from there? From there, we made a film in um, the Inupiaq-speaking 
world on the Kobuk River in um, a community on the upper Kobuk called Shungnak. Um, and, um, you know, we went on to make several other films after that as well. And so then um, was that also part of that longer term project of recording or making films in each of the um, language areas? Or It was, yeah. It was. And so how then did that project ultimately unfold, or is it still? It it, it sort of took its, a life of its own mm-hmm. and went in, in different directions. Um, these films were taking longer to make. As we took on a new film, we, you know, matured as filmmakers. Mm-hmm. We kind of dealt with the this collaborative process, which was very chaotic, but we learned to, to sort of use the, the chaos and um, tried to make films that didn't, you know, repeat themselves, mm-hmm. you know, that really came from these original stories from these communities. Um, and then we decided to um, make a film about Yupik music and dance because both Sarah and I had lived in Yupik villages and the dance moved us very much. Um, and we knew its history of, um, you know, that it had been mostly wiped out in most parts of Alaska by, by missionaries. Um, and we got money for it. We didn't know at the time it was going to take us 10 years. So that sort of changed the, you know, the evolution of, of everything. Mm-hmm. And so I guess then for, for that process, right, um, I guess, like, first off, what are, what are some of the reasons, then, if there can be maybe a truncated list of why it took 10 years? Yeah. Or? Because making films that don't start from plan, mm-hmm. they start from an idea of where, the, where, where stories come from, from this collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, it has the, a life of its own. And this went in directions that we didn't, we didn't anticipate. And um, we also realized that um, our understanding of the dance was superficial. Okay. As we edited, we realized that um, we didn't really understand what this story was or where it was. Mm-hmm. So then I guess, how how did you go about kind of trying to improve your knowledge of the dance? And just, did you just simply talk to community members about it? Or or was there um, a more involved process for for learning about it? I think the, the most important part of the process was understanding what we had, Mm -hmm. what we already had. Okay. And you know, what the material is that, you know, where that houses the story. Filmmaking, especially this kind of filmmaking, is really, it's a process of discovery. Okay. More than it is a creative process, it's a process of discovery. You start and then the the story reveals itself to you. And we wanted to have a story that was really representational, Mm -hmm. where the anthropology had a lot of integrity. You know, and something that the community embraced as well, and hopefully the, the general public. 
So we edited that film um, to a point where we had to give it up mm-hmm. because we ran out of money. Uh, started again, couldn't figure it out, did another project in between. And then um, we studied screenwriting. Okay. I took a one-month residency class in, in screenwriting. Mm-hmm. And this is very unanthropological. But I learned all about story structure and drama. Mm-hmm. You know, how the three-act structure works. And with that knowledge, we started to see the material in a, in a very different way. And so then that process helped you discover that the story and what you had already had then? It helped us discover the story. It helped us structure this so that it worked as a feature-length film. Because if you're going to make a 90-minute film, it has to have 90 minutes of story. Yeah. You know, and it has to really follow, it has to be sound structurally so that it works and it meets the expectations of the audience in a way. Um, And that was just a process to learn. So as we kind of matured as filmmakers, that became more within our reach. And so you mentioned in that um, meeting the expectations of the audience. And so I'm I'm curious, do you think that there is um, any balancing involved in both trying to depict things that the audience might um, not just not know about, but might already have preconceived notions that are inaccurate or that uh, or something like that and balance that with also trying to meet their expectations with the film or is that not something that you've really had to no that is something and i i think we're always thinking about the audience and um well just as an aside we always um test the film out to, for example this my most recent film mm-hmm. uh, we had um 10 focus group screenings Okay. And in, for one, we rented a theater in San Francisco and had about 150 people mm-hmm. and then had a discussion afterwards. And we really learned where the film worked and where it failed. So that's essential to get that kind of objectivity mm-hmm. you don't get when you're, you know, when you're in the middle of it. Yeah, when you're the one who's making yeah. it and, and doing that. But also, we're all completely literate. We're all literate in... in visual storytelling, mm-hmm. you know, because we grew up with film and, and, and television. So we understand what camera moves are. We understand what it means. We don't need an interpreter. So audiences have an expectation that stories will kind of adhere to that literacy, to that language. Mm-hmm. And they have a certain expectation for how structure works as well. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're going to present material that's really new, that challenges that, then the filmmaker has a responsibility to teach the audience what's expected in the film to give the audience the tools to know how to watch it. So you can't just uh, present something new and leave the audience adrift then? No, I I don't think you can. Or at least it wouldn't be good filmmaking or, or to do that. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I think, you know, there are films that, that do that and some of them are successful and, you know, and, and some not. But um, 
how the audience perceives the film has always been something that we've thought a lot about. I mean, I think that that's understandable too, especially because you, these films, you know, you're making them with the community and, and to show communities, but to show communities to other people too. And if you didn't consider the audience in that, it would be a somewhat strange goal. Right, for exactly. Ethnographic yeah. filmmaking. Yeah. <clears throat> so I think now will be a good time for our first music break. And you sent me a uh, couple songs. Um, so the first two of these that go together are both Maasai songs. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I was just curious if you might be able to provide a little context to the listeners for those. Sure. My last film, which I did with um, anthropologist Peter Biella from San Francisco State University, is about a Maasai family over a period of 30 years, kind of that looks at this family from two ends of mm-hmm. a 30-year divide and the change that they went through. And um, so this music is um, from the film. And it's a kind of, um, you know, a Maasai family song, a song that a woman would sing to her children. Alrighty. This will be a Maasai song and then a Maasai lullaby. <laughs> Papa, 
This is Speaking of Anthropology on KSUA 91.5 FM Fairbanks, and today I have a special guest of Len Kammerling, uh, a filmmaker currently associated with the UA Museum of the North, and also teaches film writing here, but as a quite, quite a uh, long and prestigious uh, history of filmmaking for ethnographic films in the North. Okay, yeah, so we were discussing your relationship with the anthropological community over the years. Just to... Right, and, um, you know, this is not a story that I've told very much, but, um, you know, when I was just starting, mm -hmm. after I had made, you know, my, my first film, and it showed at a small film festival, um, I met a few important anthropologists who really kind of moved this forward in a, um, you know, in a very dramatic way. And one of them was Alan Lomax, okay. uh, who is known as an uh, ethnomusicologist and, mm -hmm. um, you know, has an amazing history of saving American music. And um, there was a section in this film of, of Yupik dance, and he was in this film festival jury, and he saw it and, you know, came kind of running back and wanted this for a film that he was making. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea who he was, you know, just a guy. Um, but um, we kind of hit it off, and he really helped me. He just, um, you gave me a lot of encouragement mm -hmm. and said, yeah, this is, this is a wild idea, but it's, you know, do it. And then he introduced me to people who really helped me when I was writing proposals, and uh, one of them was Margaret Mead. Oh. And he said to me, oh, you know, you must tell Margaret about this. And I said, Margaret who? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he set up a meeting, and this was like in 1971. And um, I went to the Museum of Natural History. Mm -hmm. And um, there she was, you know, behind this giant mahogany desk. And... Um, I told her what I was doing, and she said, you know, Alan had told me about it, and um, I said, would you, you know, be an advisor, and can I put your name on my proposal? She said, yeah. So that proposal was funded. Big name to have Big name proposal, yeah. And she died shortly afterwards, so, you know, mm -hmm. I, n I never really got to talk to her again about the project, but, you know, it's like there are people who have, who are well-known, mm -hmm. and they started once, too. Mm -hmm. And so they... They were, be, they were beginners once, too. Yeah. And so they're very generous, you know, and if you ask them to help, most likely they're going to say yes. I certainly, as someone who is at the beginning of, of my anthropological career, do appreciate, right, the, the willingness of people, yeah. you know. And yeah, yeah folks like you who are willing to come on a show, right, an undergraduate anthropology show. So I certainly do get that, and it is... Yeah, good. It's a yeah. very nice part of... Yeah, yeah. ...the community. Yeah. And um, I think what this did 
more than, you know, have great famous names on my proposal, mm-hmm. um, is that it just gave me the confidence to go forward without knowing mm-hmm. what was going to happen. You know, to start a process moving forward and kind of, you know, making peace with the chaos and hoping it ends up somewhere. And it did, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> I am curious. So you, you have mentioned before that the filmmaking uh, is a very chaotic process. So I'm curious for you personally, how how do you learn to make peace with that and to just kind of to deal with it and maybe not get, I don't know, too wrapped up in the fact that it, that it is chaotic and just accept it for what it is? Yeah, I guess I, I've always really loved putting myself in another cultural world Mm -hmm. and and figuring it out Mm -hmm. you know what you see is not what's there Mm -hmm. you see the surface and you make assumptions which are never right and then you get a little piece of knowledge and it you know and it clears something up and the film was kind of like my process of understanding as well and then you go to the editing room and you have this snapshot of life Mm mm-hmm you know, and you have to make sense of that, a cultural understanding that then is agreed upon by the community. Mm-hmm. That yes, that's us. You know, that can go forward. So it's like, I guess I've always been pretty comfortable with the questions rather than, you know, rather than the answers, mm-hmm. and putting myself in that stream. You know, and seeing where it was where it was going to take me. Just enjoying it and looking forward to seeing what you saw and not worrying too much about however you know these films are funded Mm -hmm. and funders want to know what you're going to do yes they don't want to know that you're going to put yourself in a stream and see where it goes you know i don't imagine that that gets you quite as many funding opportunities no no so there was always that conflict and also you know i wanted these films to be embraced by by the communities mm-hmm. but i also wanted a career you know i wanted them to be seen all over mm-hmm. and not just in you know anthropological circles but you know generally as well but as things went on and these films got wider and wider dis- distribution the anthropology world the world of ethnographic film that international community is where i went you know, that's where the films were really embraced. Mm. And that's where I, I became, that's what I eventually became part of. So then it raises to me the question of, um, for someone who gets into this uh, role or this niche of ethnographic filmmaking and stuff, what are um, like some of the specific things that you think that ethnographic films should fulfill right as as their role we've discussed a little bit about you know representing the community um maybe more faithfully than some other types of films so i'm i'm kind of curious as to where you see them falling in you know and maybe if there are differences between an ethnographic film versus like your kind of conventional like nat geo stereotypical documentary or something yeah and what an ethnographic film is nobody knows (laughs) You know, when there there are, there are no rules, there's no rule book, there's no parameters. It's like, you know, anthropologists can't agree on, you know, on, on what this actually is. Mm-hmm. 
But I think for me, in a film about culture is when an audience is seeing it and they forget mm -hmm. that they're in Africa or in a village in Alaska. And they just identify something in there becomes self-reflective. It reflects back on their own lives. And so that then is... When that happens, it's, that's a moment that is kind of transformative. People mm -hmm. remember that. And they're going to be thinking about that, you know, after the lights go on an hour, a week, a year later. That... And films that can do that, I think, are very, very powerful and lasting something that will stick with them and and yeah things that are universally human mm -hmm. and when an audience connects with that mm -hmm. you see the cultural attributes the information the external landscape what people do in a very very different way you have a sort of balance between the interior landscape and the exterior landscape and that's that's a hard place to get yeah yeah that's not the easiest thing in the world to, to pull off i guess it doesn't seem that way to me at any rate i you know there's um there are many ethnographic filmmakers that are you know who are not anthropologists mm -hmm. um but are kind of dedicated to you know recording and interpreting culture but I think for some of us, um, and I know for me in these you know, years when I was you know, making these films, um, I wasn't encumbered by the rules of the discipline. Mm -hmm. you know, and I was rather free to explore other ways and to kind of you know, let things go. To, to just sit in the stream and let it see what yeah. it took you. Yeah. yeah, but I was always concerned with the with the integrity of the anthropology, mm -hmm. you know, that it work and that it be honest. And, um, and we brought many, many people, many anthropologists in to, you know, to provide that knowledge and that view for us. That was always an important part of the, you know, the process of all the films. From, from the get-go, that was, that was yes. something valued too. Yes, yeah. So I think now would be a good time for our uh, final, second final break. And so the other song that you sent was um, Stanley Waska from mm -hmm. Drums of Winter. Right. So if you could maybe provide a little bit of context for that one to the listeners as well. Mm -hmm. Stanley Waska is the, the main character, the main person in, in the Drums of Winter, which is about Yupik um, music and, and dance. And um, this piece is not from the film, but it's part of the 38 hours that we didn't use. Okay. And um, which has become more and more and more valuable as, as time goes on and that world changes. Mm -hmm. But this is a, a, a short clip of, of Stanley uh, rehearsing solo, um, a song that he, that he created. All righty. This is Stanley Waska uh, from unreleased material from Drums of Winter. Yo <laughs> 
Speaking of Anthropology on KSUA 91.5 FM Fairbanks. And today I'm joined by the special guest of Len Kammerling, an ethnographic filmmaker here in Fairbanks. And for the last um, about 10 or so minutes of the show, I want to ask you about um, some of the things that you've been doing at the museum. Because uh, I will be honest with you, I'm not fully familiar with everything that the film curator has to do at the museum. So... I was kind of wondering if you might explain that a little bit. Sure, yeah. Um, whenever a film is made, there's a lot of material that's that's not used. Mm-hmm. For example, in The Jumps of Winter, it's a 90-minute film, or 38 hours you know, that, that we didn't use. Mm-hmm. Kind of 15 or so years into this process, we started to see that, that those the world was changing. A lot of the elders in the films had died off, um, and this material became very precious. And I knew in the future it would become even more precious for their families and their communities. So the idea of, of making this a collection mm-hmm. became more and more powerful. And eventually that, that's what happened. So the film collection at the museum mostly consists of film that was taken over this 20-year period, Mm -hmm. including all of the unused material from all of the films that we've made, and all of the sound recordings as well. Okay. So a lot of this material, it's the only recordings of, you know, of many, many individuals from, from these communities. So, yeah, so then it's, it's essentially like a very, um, like only place in the world archive of some of these people and some of the stories or things that they were doing. Exactly. I mean, in a way, it's kind of a repository of knowledge Mm -hmm. and uh, something that, you know, I think really is important to to preserve from the future. So we're very lucky that most of this is in film, in 16-millimeter film, Mm -hmm. because best practices of, of archives really focus on preserving the film element Mm -hmm. because we know that film will last a hundred years if it's taken care of and we don't really know that about anything from the digital world yeah yeah especially too with the way that um file formats and stuff and all those kinds of digital storage mediums they change fairly rapidly and so yeah if you were to they change they wander Mm -hmm. they get lost if you have a can of film on a shelf, it's probably going to be there when you come back. You know, digital files have a tendency to to wander. But well-funded archives um, are always uh, migrating their material forward to new formats. Mm-hmm. And that's often on a monthly basis. 
So it's a very, very labor-intensive process. And the digital revolution is the most wonderful thing, Mm -hmm. and it has democratized filmmaking, but it's also a nightmare for archives. Yes, we have um, had Leslie McCartney on the show previously to discuss just a little bit about the oral archives and stuff here, and she has mentioned that, the, the, the exhaustive process. Yeah. And so then what does that look like for your film archives specifically? Are you guys, have you digitized any of of what is actually on film or are you just letting it be for now? We have the completed films that mm-hmm. we made and there are 14 of them mm-hmm. in this series and all of this other material. Some of it has been uh, digitized for access, mm-hmm. but our preservation material is the original film. Mm-hmm. You know, which is all in, preserved in mm-hmm. very good condition. In a way, the audio archive is even more important because in the film days, um, you know, we could never think of filming a, an hour-long interview. Impossible. I mean, that would have just broken the budget. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'd film five minutes and then... Halfway through, we'd film another five minutes and hope that we got it. Okay. But we would record the whole thing through. Mm-hmm. So all of these interviews that we have pieces of film of, we have these entire lengthy interviews in their original integrity. So then, yeah, that's that's like your your guys' own kind of oral archives without then. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So that's a very important aspect of it. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, so trying to, I guess, if you know then, yeah, like you said, that those will last, the, the films and stuff will last 100 years, and if you can keep the oral recordings nice and solid, then, then yeah, you could, those could exist in perpetuity long after, you know, <laughs> any of us are still here, hopefully. Right, and that's the idea, and, you know, that communities have access to it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some grad student is going to come along Mm -hmm. 30 years from now and hear something in there and see something that nobody has seen before, and that'll change everything. You know, that's that's the value of this. That's the hope, too. That's the hope. A lot of museum collections is, is that, you know, at some point someone will come along with the expertise and the time and the funding and they can look at that and they can... Exactly. They can, you know, get something super meaningful out of that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And we know they're coming. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, no. It's just when. It's always just a matter of when, (laughs) yes. I I work in the archaeology lab, and so, yeah, it's, it's... somewhat similar like for me um as an undergraduate it's a lot of just rehousing collections and data entry and stuff right but you do all that because you know someday someone's going to come along and they're going to be able to look at something that you know i've entered in the database or whatever and they'll be able to get meaning out of it more than yeah and i think for the you know museum collections in general it's like um the questions forward are always changing Mm -hmm. but you have to know what what we have, what came before. Mm-hmm. And that existing knowledge is is just essential to forming this, you know, the questions for the for the future. Yeah. yeah. Even the radical ones. <laughs> well, yeah, who knows what they'll be asking about in the future, you know? 
we can't we can't right now we'll just have to leave that one up to them right <laughs> so for our final question of the show um we ask this of every guest that we have on and so i know as you have said before that you were formally trained as an anthropologist but i don't think that that precludes you from being asked or maybe answering this question so uh to you personally what does anthropology mean hmm. <clears throat> That's a hard question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I I think the the moments in anthropology that have really moved me that I look for that I strive for are those kinds of transformative mo- moments where people see something in another culture that reflects back on their own life in a way that they never thought about before. You know, and I I've witnessed those moments and how they change an audience, how they change people. And, um, you know, that's kind of what it means to me, the way that it changes the way the general public thinks about culture. And that's a powerful vector. All right. It's a very interesting response, something for the listeners to uh ruminate on for the rest of the day thank you so much for joining me here today my pleasure thanks for asking me this has been speaking of anthropology on ksua 91.5 fm fairbanks tune in next friday from 11 to noon for another wonderful show with another wonderful guest thank you so much